0: Let's turn this morning to Psalm 70. Psalm 70 this morning. Uh, We concluded our series last week on the book of Ephesians. And this morning, uh, we're going to be dealing with the passage, the Psalm number 70. Psalm 70. And our subject for this morning will simply be Let God be magnified. Let God be magnified. You'll notice in the header of this particular Psalm, uh, it is entitled to the chief musician, a Psalm of David to bring to remembrance. A Psalm of David to bring to remembrance. These titles that are given to us in scripture are really meant to draw our hearts and draw our attention to the intent of the Psalm itself. Uh, This this Psalm uh, of David, uh, is being uh, addressed to the chief musician. Uh, we have only one psalm like this title uh, that's similar to this, and it's in Psalm 38, which is titled in a similar fashion, A Psalm of David to Bring to Remembrance. Uh, to remember, of course, is depends on our perspective. Uh, we all have memories. We all have things that we remember, But this is to be taken in account with those other psalms that speak of what is it that we are to uh, remember. Uh, David, of course, as the writer of this particular psalm, uh, he's also the writer of Psalm 38 and Psalm 40. And what Psalm 70 appears to be is an excerpt from those two other psalms. In other words, he pulls out a portion of it, and there is now the emphasis on a certain portion of those particular psalms. Uh, it is uh, very suitable where it's placed, because if we were to go ahead and look at Psalm 71, we would see that the primary uh, emphasis on that particular psalm is God being a rock and a fortress. Uh, very powerful words used uh, to describe who God is. So to bring to remembrance, uh, David, in this particular psalm, is personally pleading with God. His plea is that God would not forget him. Uh, You realize that all of our lives, we have forgotten about as much as we know. You don't even know what you've forgotten. You have forgotten things that you thought you would never forget. David, in, in his humanity, is expressing this great concern to God where he says, please don't forget me. Now, we have hope today because God doesn't forget anything. We know that God never forgets his people, but God has never forgotten a single thing. Uh, Nothing has ever slipped from his mind. Can you imagine what that would be like to never have anything slip from your mind? God is not like you and I. Uh, God is always in remembrance. But David here pleads that he would not be forgotten. But David's Lord here, he also tells us we serve a God that can be heard imagine crying out to God, knowing that God hears you. Uh, We're only within the sound of each other's, you're only within the sound of my voice today. Uh, There are people who can't hear my voice uh, that are outside these walls. But God is telling us and reminding us, and David shows us how God can be heard. Often remembrance is often associated with a memorial. So this Psalm 70 is referenced as a memorial psalm. And it acts as what we would, con- we would consider to be something that connects us between two particular psalms that are supplication. Uh, supplication is something, is prayer that's being offered in even more diligent and in a more earnest manner. Now, if we could hear David speaking these words... I believe that the way David says these things, there would be great emphasis on the words in which David says. Uh, these are not trite words that he is saying. This is David really pleading and pleading with God, God, whatever you do, don't forget me. Now, this particular psalm is, also reminds us of what it is that we are to be brought into remembrance of. Uh, we remember... Uh, what Christ has done. We remember that Christ, who is the beloved begotten Son of the Father, Christ is described in the Scripture as being the head of the church, and He is the Savior of His people, and He's the Savior of His church. We ought to remember what Christ has done every day. It shouldn't be something we have to just say, oh, today's the day I'm supposed to remember what Christ did for me. Or, it's the Lord's Day, so Sunday I'm supposed to remember what Christ did for me. We should be in a spirit of remembrance at all times. Because Christ has accomplished in us everything that we could not accomplish. Uh, we, without Christ, we can do nothing. Jesus' own words were, without me, you can do nothing. And yet, it's a memorial psalm that David writes about. Now, you understand that David, throughout Scripture, is described as a type of Christ. He's not Christ, but he pictures a lot of what Christ would endure. So this psalm has to be remembered as not only a prayer, but it's a prophecy. So David is not just talking about his own life. One of the great errors we make in the psalms is we fail to see Christ in the psalms. And if you don't see Christ in the psalms, you begin to lose the, the merit of what David was saying. Not every psalm of David is about David's life. Sometimes it's a parallel. Sometimes David is actually not even talking about himself. He's talking about prophesying about what Christ is going to do. Psalm 22 is a great example of that. Psalm 22 is one of the suffering servant psalms and it's predicting what Christ would go through. David never went through those things, but Christ did. So this is one of those psalms that although David is speaking and David is writing, It's also a psalm that is centered on Christ. What is it that is being brought to the forefront in this particular psalm? What kind of applications could we make concerning Christ here? Well, let's read the psalm and let's see what this says. It says, Make haste, O God, to deliver me. Make haste to help me, O Lord. Let them be ashamed and confounded that seek after my soul. Let them be turned backward and put to confusion that desire my hurt. Let them be turned back for a reward of their shame that say, Aha, aha. Let all those that seek thee rejoice and be glad in thee, and let such as love thy salvation say continually, Let God be magnified. But I am poor and needy. Make haste unto me, O God. Thou art my help and my deliverer, O Lord. Make no tarry. At first read, we immediately assume David's got to be talking about himself and only himself alone. However, there's three things that are being mentioned here that show us that this is also prophetic towards the things of Christ. David speaks of sorrow. David speaks of suffering. And David also speaks in these five verses of sacrifice and even death. I think it would be wrong of us today to simply say that this psalm has nothing to do with Christ and only to do with David. Christ is in the psalm. Christ is in most all the psalms, although his name is never mentioned. Christ is all over the Old Testament, even though his name is never mentioned. We see the Messiah, we see the sacrifices. Every one of the Old Testament sacrifices would have no purpose and no value if it was not pointing to Christ. The Psalm 70 has to do with what not only Christ was going to endure, but also, in a parallel fashion, what David was going to deal with. Many of these psalms, we also realize, were used in temple worship. Uh, If you were to be in a temple worship service, Uh, you would not have been told to take a hymn book. You would have been told to sing the psalms. Those psalms were songs. That's why the title that David says, To the Chief Musician. Which means this particular psalm might have been sung. Now the question is, how can we remember someone who had not yet come onto the scene? Christ, who's always been, even in eternity past, has not yet come in human form. He's not yet been incarnated during David's days, right? Christ is still, at this point, at the right hand of the Father. How can David remember someone who hadn't been here? You see, today, even at the end of our service, when we take the Lord's Supper together, we are, in fact, remembering. We're remembering something that took place. We're looking back to what Jesus Christ did on the cross, how he took our sin for us. He paid our sin debt. We're remembering that. So what is David besides remembering, wanting God to not forget him? Herein lies where the words of this psalm are also very, very similar, again, to what it says in Psalm 40, verses 13 through 17. If you want to turn there quickly, we'll read that portion of that psalm. And I want you to see how this is also titled to the chief musician, a psalm of David. Psalm 40, The wording is similar, but a little bit different. Begin in verse 13. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be ashamed and confounded together that seek after my soul to destroy it. Let them be driven backward and put to shame that wish me evil. Let them be desolate for the reward of their shame that say unto me, Aha, aha. Let all those that seek thee rejoice and be glad in thee. Let such as love thy salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified. But I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinketh upon me. Thou art my help and my deliverer, make no tarrying, O my God. Very similar, but the wording is a little bit different. Uh, David uses the words, be pleased, O God, in Psalm 40, to deliver me. In Psalm 70, David says, make haste, do it quickly. Do it quickly, or if it pleases you, those two Psalms taken together. So let's think about this from the perspective of not only what David is praying, but also how it applies to Christ. So David is praying to be delivered quickly. He desires the shame of his enemies. And David, throughout this psalm, remembers and proclaims the joyful comfort that all who seek the Lord can have. I have not met anyone who does not want joyful comfort. Joyful comfort is only temporary unless it's comfort that you find in Jesus Christ. This world is filled with temporary comforts. It's filled with things that are comfortable for the moment, but they will not last. David says, I want something more than just temporary comfort. I want something that's everlasting and eternal. So David, first of all, in this very first verse, asked that God would put him into remembrance of his own deliverance. David is teaching us that even in our own prayers we ought to be earnest even when God seems to be delaying his answer. Have you ever prayed and only seemingly to get a deaf ear from God? Have you prayed and didn't seem to get an answer? I will tell you two things. Uh, God's not deaf. God heard you. Delay is always for your good. God does not delay for your bad. He delays for your good. David is asking God to deliver him quickly. Make haste to help me. This would be like you and I praying to God. Say, God, I've got this issue. I've got this problem. I want quick deliverance. I want it now. We've all prayed that way to God. I want deliverance now. Yet David teaches us that even though we are to be earnest in prayer, even though God seems to be in a state of delay, In his time, God will respond. So think about what we remember about our own deliverance. What were we delivered from? What is truly the gospel all about? The gospel, we often make the mistake of saying the gospel is when I tell somebody they're a sinner and that unless they say this prayer, we do this wrongly, sadly, and unless they say this prayer, they're going to go to hell. We say that's the entirety of the gospel. I want you to know the gospel was much more than just say this prayer. The gospel is actually based upon an actual transaction that took place between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Co-equal, co-eternal persons. This is the essence of who God is, right? The Trinity. The entire Trinity, the entire gospel, is founded upon the death of Christ. No death of Christ, no gospel. Okay? If all you did was presented to someone, you're a sinner, and unless you pray this prayer, you can't be saved. It has to be based upon the reality of the death of Christ. Without the death of Christ, there is absolutely no gospel. So the gospel cannot be so oversimplified that we lose sight of what the gospel really is. That is one of the greatest subjects that we must treat with great care is the death of Christ. Grace is about the death of Christ. Think about what grace really is. Grace, Noah understood what grace was, yet Noah did not live in Christ's day. What moved Noah to build that ark? What moved Noah to fear of God? But it also says that Noah found grace in the eyes of God. If the death of Christ and the gift that's given to us through the death of Christ, that's where grace comes from, how could Noah have found grace in an event that had not yet taken place? Without the death of Christ, without the crucifixion, the burial, the resurrection, there is no gospel. Yet Noah found grace, found favor. Noah also built an altar, And he offered burnt offerings on the altar. What was the purpose of those offerings? Those were being offered as a remembrance. It describes Noah taking those steps of those burnt offerings on the altar. And it says that the Lord smelled a sweet savor. That means it was acceptable. Under the entirety of the ceremonial law and the ceremonial dispensation, they were always recognized by the sacrifices. The sufferings and the death of Christ are what? They were sacrifices. When Christ in His humanity suffered on this earth and He went to the cross and ultimately died, every one of those ceremonial sacrifices pictured what happened on the cross. Every single one of them. None of them was without merit. That's why when Jesus Christ came, he puts away the ceremonial law, and he says, you don't need pictures, types, and shadows anymore because you actually see the fulfillment of all of those prophecies. Oftentimes, these psalms, again, as I mentioned to you, that they were sung. These psalms were often sung during the time that the burnt offering was being offered. See, you and I don't understand temple worship there's no altar going today with burnt offerings. There's no incense being burned. There's no smoke being offered. And you notice that on our table that says, do this in remembrance of me, there's no animal there. There's no, you didn't bring your sacrifice today. Where is your sacrifice? Your sacrifice is to atone for your sin. Where is it? By the way, your sacrifice that's without blemish. Where is it? Oh, you don't have one. I don't either. Why not? Because Jesus Christ did away with those sacrifices. And as he did away with those sacrifices, but during the temple worship, the sacrifices, the burnt offerings was being offered, the priests and the Levites were actually engaged in singing and instrumental music. And it was to make How glorious what was taking place to show the glory of that. This psalm really casts light on the entire subject of what the temple worship would have looked like. The idea here was for us to have a view of faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. You cannot have faith without Christ. What about all those people in the Old Testament that lived by faith? How did they live by faith with a Christ who had not yet come yet? And yet, in these pictures, it gives us the idea, the picture of the love of Christ, how we can apprehend just how much He loves His people. We see His mercy, we see His person, we see His glory. We see His salvation, and we see Him as His people. Today, if you are A believer, if you're a child of God, Jesus Christ alone, as Psalm 71 says, is your rock and is your fortress. When David writes about a rock and a fortress in Psalm 71, he's still writing about Jesus Christ being his rock and his fortress. He said, how can that be? Christ had not yet come. The promises, the sacrifices. This whole psalm sets Jesus Christ as Lord. And yet, in five verses, you never see Jesus Christ being mentioned. But notice, Paul, or David rather, says, Make haste to deliver me, to make haste to help me. Jesus Christ, as the Messiah, in his time of sorrow, in his time of suffering, he felt the extremity of sin. Now, I want you to be, want you to be careful that you hear what I'm saying. He did not become sin. He did not think about sinning, but he felt the extremity of sin, what sin actually causes, which is death. The extremity of sin is death. Sin brings death. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God's eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin brings death. He felt it. As a man in his humanity, in this world, He was supported by His Heavenly Father. A lot of times people don't think about this. How many times do we see Jesus praying, John 17, the the prayers? He's praying unto His Father. He looked to God as His everlasting support. What do we do when we look to our Heavenly Father? We're looking to our Heavenly Father as that everlasting promises and the covenant that He gave when we go to the lord in prayer now our prayers are going through jesus christ the only reason you can get to the father is because you get there through the son if the son isn't there you can't get to the father jesus christ at the right hand of the father is making intercession ever living to make intercession the prayer of the saint goes up Jesus Christ takes that prayer and He's the one that offers it to the Father. Your prayer doesn't even get, doesn't even get off the ground without Jesus Christ. This is often a harsh reality, but it's, it's worthless for a person who doesn't know Christ to pray unless their first prayer is a prayer of repentance and belief in Jesus Christ. Is it because God can't hear them? Absolutely not. He can, but He won't. Because their prayer is not being offered through Jesus Christ. That's the only reason our prayer got heard today. That's the only reason when we prayed as a congregation and as a a pastor. The only reason is not because of pastors, not because of church. It's because we're praying on the merits of the righteousness of Christ alone. That's it. And yet when Jesus Christ took our place on behalf of his people, he did truly not... Mystically, he truly bore our sins. He truly carried our sorrows, Isaiah 53. He truly endured the contradiction of sinners. He truly did all that he came to do. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. Make haste to help me. When the Lord was in the garden, what did Jesus do? He prayed to the Father. If it be possible, Father, take this cup from me. We know that the cup was the cup of sin. We know that this wasn't Jesus getting cold feet. This was not Jesus standing back saying, you know what, I'm having a change of mind. But he's given us this pattern of a reliance upon his Father. Notice verse number two, let them be ashamed and confounded that seek after my soul. Let them be turned backward and put to confusion that desire my hurt. David, of course, knew what it was to have enemies. One of his greatest enemies was Saul, of course, but maybe his second greatest enemy was a man by the name of Absalom, his own son. His own son desired his death. His own son desired because he, he wanted the throne. But notice David as he prays, he says, Let them be ashamed and confounded to seek after my soul. Let them be turned backward and put to confusion that desire my hurt. This is a prayer, but it's also a prediction. As we've already observed in this psalm, uh, there would be those that would be ashamed. There would be those that would be confounded. There would be those who sought after David's soul. But do you realize that when the mob finally turned on Christ, when that mob of Jews and Gentiles, and they turned on Christ, and it was a mob, this was not a handful of people this was like an entire town saying you know what we want this man gone we want this messiah dead we don't care if he's done anything wrong we want the messiah we want him on the cross because he's not our messiah jesus went to that cross not because god got overwhelmed by the mob but because that was the divine plan of god and he didn't go to the cross until the exact appointed hour And there will come a day when every single person who is part of that mob and every single person today that hates the things of God will one day be ashamed and they will be confounded, those that are seeking after the soul of Christians, these that are persecuting Christians all over the world and it's happening at alarming rates. One day they'll be ashamed and confounded by the seeking after the soul of God's people. If you and I would have been in that day and age with Christ, and I think if we're honest with ourselves this morning, we might have just been just like the rest of that mob. Yet Christ also had in mind those Jewish enemies that he would have. Remember, he was not even received in his own country. The Old Testament church, they may have also understood, because it would have been a prediction that the Messiah would actually be sought after. Remember, the Jews believe that when their Messiah came, he would immediately set up a throne. He would immediately set up his kingdom. So when Jesus Christ, who perfectly fulfills Isaiah 53, which is still by this, to this day ignored by Orthodox Jews, they will say, we do not read Isaiah 53. Do you know why? Because there's evidence and proof that that was about Jesus Christ, and he fulfills it to a perfect he. But they ignore that. Because their Messiah, they say, no way is he coming to die. And yet, that's the very reason Christ came, was to die. And remember, we often say that Jesus Christ died for you, and he died for the purpose of saving you from hell. That's not the primary purpose why Christ died. The glory of Christ, the glory of God, is the purpose. He didn't have to save anyone. He didn't have to even offer the free gift of salvation. You and I have done nothing to earn it. We've done nothing to keep it. There's nothing we can do to say we deserve this salvation. But imagine what this psalm would have been for the Old Testament saint. It would have been like a beacon, like a lighthouse that would have showed them what's coming. That one day when their Messiah came, their Messiah would be sought after. He would be refused. He would be rejected. To this day, most of those Jews that were the enemies of Christ in those days have not been put to shame yet. They've not been confounded. But the day is coming when all who sought after the, soul, the Lord's soul will be ashamed. Paul actually writes about that in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 16, when he talks about the wrath that is to come upon them. So David was assured and remembered that the more they raged, the more the enemies raged, the nearer they were to destruction. You know, the, the more near the destruction of the enemies of God is, the nearer our deliverance is. You know, every day that clicks off the calendar, and by the way, they are flying. The days are clicking. I, I'm, I'm convinced there's less than 24 hours in a day. I'm convinced of it. I I look up and I say, there's absolutely no way we're in There's no way. Time is just moving, it's moving, and it's moving. And you know, every day that moves, we're one day closer to our perfect, eternal deliverance from this world. And folks, I'm telling you, don't fall in love with the things of this world, because every single bit of it is going to burn away. It's all going to be gone. God gives us things to enjoy. We've got the beauty of His creation, but do not set your hope in this. Set your hope in God. Parents, grandparents, don't teach your kids to set their hope in, in these things of this world. Teach them to set their hope in God. The most important thing you can teach them from when they're little is teach them about Christ. Not what great career they're going to have. Teach them about Christ. It's the very reason, the very reason why. We, we do what we do is because we understand that there is a very real time coming when there will be a complete deliverance. David says in verse 3, let them be turned back for a reward of their shame, that say, aha, aha. It's a strange set of words that's used here, but it's, it's like the shame, shameful mockery when an enemy thinks they've gotten deliverance uh, over a particular opponent. David is remembering by this statement. That really, he's telling God to turn them back. You realize how many things we take into our own hands we're really not supposed to take into our own hands. Let God turn them back. He mentions that not only will they be turned back, but they'll be turned back for a reward of their shame. Those that have made a mockery. The repetition of this idea is showing us that the mockery and the behavior towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was mocked. He was, he was struck. His beard was pulled out. He was, he was crowned with a, 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 a crown that was filled with thorns. He was spit upon. He was mocked by a purple robe being put on his back and a mock uh, uh, crown. Not because they were acknowledging him, but they were, they were making a mockery of him. And yet, in the very mockery, that they did. Do you realize those people were fulfilling prophecy? They were fulfilling the prophecy that one day when this Messiah would come, he would be treated with great disrespect and with hate. You're beginning to see how David in Psalm 70 hes not only talking about himself, but he's also talking about the Savior who is to come. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. You realize Judas was a fulfillment of prophecy. Judas was not a rogue disciple. It was before the foundation of the world that Judas would be the betrayer. It's a hard concept for us to grab. But this idea that says any of the 12, it could have been Peter. No, Judas is prophesied as being the one who would be the betrayer in the Old Testament. Yeah, think about the many people who were not necessarily just lay Jewish people or Gentiles. What about Caiaphas? What about Herod? What about the Jewish rulers who sought to put Christ to shame in open court? His entire trial was a mockery. They tried to trip him up. They tried to make him stumble. They brought false charges to bring against him. They sought to turn him backward. They sought to destroy him. And do you know when they put him on the cross, they thought they won? And actually what in fact they did is they just fulfilled the gospel. (laughs) Can you imagine the enemies of God doing things so reprehensible, yet in their reprehensible acts, they're actually fulfilling prophecy? Some of these things we see happen in our world today, you say, this is awful, this is terrible. Some of these things are direct fulfillment of prophecy that say your deliverance is even closer. These are not random acts, folks. Life is not random. There is a sovereign, providential God And yet, these things might confuse us. These things might bring us to a place where we don't understand. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, they rejoiced at his mockery. They rejoiced at his mangled body. You and I don't even know what a scourged body looks like, and we'll spare you those details today. But when they saw it, they crowned his head, blood flowing from all these open wounds, And do you think their words were probably very similar? Uh Aha, aha. We got him. After all those times Jesus disappeared from a crowd, all the times he wasn't escaping. His time had not yet come. And the very moment of his day when he was to be delivered, he voluntarily and willfully went to the cross. They didn't drag him kicking and screaming. And no, and I've said this before, he was not going to call 10,000 angels to remove him from that cross. And you and I better be grateful that he didn't. Because you'd have no salvation today. You see, Jesus Christ had to die on the cross. Jesus Christ had to go and bleed and die. And yet, here, this divine transaction. I want you to understand that there is no sorrow and no suffering that you and I will ever experience That will compare to what jesus christ experienced on the cross our sin has consequences there will be bad circumstances but it will never compare to what jesus christ went through david knew what these things were but he also is prophesying verse 4 let all those that seek thee rejoice and be glad in thee and let such as love thy salvation say continually let god be magnified David remembers and reminds us that those who seek the Lord, love his salvation, have the prayers of the people of God on earth, and the intercession of Christ in heaven on their behalf. That is truly something to be joyful about. To realize today that God will be magnified. Every believer here today ought to leave here today, and even in the mind's eye today, ought to say, let God be magnified in my life, whatever comes. Let God be magnified in my affliction. Let God be magnified in my suffering. Let God be magnified in my sorrow. We're real quick to magnify God when everything is going well. But folks, when things are going bad and suffering, remember, your suffering will never be as bad as what Jesus Christ went through on the cross. Ever. It won't ever come close. There's never been a death like that. There's never been a death like that. And yet, this most precious thought David has in full view... The remembrance not only of his own personal sufferings, both in soul and body. Imagine being hunted down or attempted to be hunted down by your own son. We talk about how bad the hunting down of Saul would have been, but imagine being hunted down by your own son. This prayer is comprehensive. It covers all who seek him. All who seek God will rejoice and be glad in thee. When Christ illuminates in our heart through the power of the Spirit, we are inclined to seek God. We're inclined to desire that God be magnified. What more can encourage us than this? Jesus Christ is praying for His people, even right now. I can't imagine why Christ gives me anything. Why would He pray for a wretch like me, who knows who I really am, who knows? My wicked thoughts, my wicked attitudes, Sometimes the things that I say and do, they're reprehensible to a holy God. And yet by His grace and by His mercy, He doesn't remove me from the brethren. I don't deserve anything that God has offered. Yet we're encouraged to know that we can rejoice and be glad in God. God so loved that He gave His only begotten Son... Imagine what that means. That means God did not spare His very best. And upon His very best, He laid the iniquities of all His people. He delivered Him up to bear the entire wrath of divine justice. Jesus Christ absorbed the full wrath of the Father. That should have been you. That should have been me. This is not some pretend hypothetical wrath. Jesus Christ absorbed it all. When we seek the Lord, we're being led by the Spirit, of course. The Spirit reveals to us the gospel, our need for repentance, our need to believe, our need to put all of our hope and trust in Christ alone. That request to place our faith and trust in Christ alone is granted by the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God is the one that does the converting. He's the one that does the regenerating. We are made willing to believe. It's a hard truth for people to get. You're made willing to believe. The truth of what Jesus Christ is, being spoken by the Spirit, it's granted. Let God be magnified is indeed a wonderful picture. There is an abundance of grace. And finally, verse 5. But I am poor and needy. Make haste unto me, O God. Thou art my help, my deliverer, O Lord. Make no tearing. In just a second. David, as he writes this particular aspect, he uses two important phrases: my help and my deliverer. Make no tearing. Our Lord, when he was on the cross, the Bible uses the word, he emptied himself. He never ever cease to be God. He emptied himself of all the rights and all the privileges. It is false teaching to say that on the cross, Jesus Christ was no longer God. That's false. He never, ever became non-deity. 100% man, 100% God. Members of this church know I say that so many times, and I say it because it is key to understanding proper theology. Jesus Christ was always God. He will always be God. There's never a moment he wasn't. So we might say, how in the world, if he's God, does he need a help and a deliverer? Remember, in his humanity, Christ emptied himself. He was truly, in those hours, I want, you to try to, you know, want your mind to try to grasp this, He was truly forsaken of God the Father in those moments. Forsaken to the standpoint that he was being left. The despise of men was real. You realize Jesus Christ could do nothing for himself. He couldn't take care of his own garments. He was needy, yet he had no one to help him. You realize all the mob outnumbered the people who even were there. There were no disciples left at the cross except John and Mary. Mary and John were the only ones standing with him. So it would be foolish for us to sit and think, if I'd have been there, I'd have been standing right there by the cross, I'd have been in support. You probably wouldn't have. It's kind of like the old adage we talk about Peter, how awful of a person Peter was. He always had his foot in his mouth. Listen, Peter is every one of us. Every one of us is Peter. We're always gung-ho. We're always zealous for God. Here's what we're going to do, and here's what we're going to accomplish. And then when real persecution comes, we flee like scared rabbits. Be careful about saying what you will do in a certain situation when persecution really comes. This country doesn't know it. We have no idea what persecution for your faith in this country really is yet. But I've told you and I've told you, not a prophet, just reading the Bible. It's coming, and it's coming like a freight train, and it's coming fast. And and parents, it's coming for your kids. It's coming for your grandkids. And if we do not establish our children in the way they ought to go, (laughs) there will be detrimental effects to our families. I believe in the sovereignty of God. I also understand that, listen, we are still very needy people. I need him every day. You need him every day. So, Christ in his humanity felt all of the pain. He felt all of the nails. He felt every one of the thorns that pierced his brow. But yet, he calls upon the Lord. He uses the term, Why is there? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It wasn't an answer that he was seeking a question for. He was giving us the proof of what was actually happening on the cross. When Jesus is asking a question of his Father, it's not because he needs information. When I ask you a question, I need information. When you ask me a question, you need information. Jesus Christ didn't need information from God the Father. It was a confirming of what was going to take place. Again, how can we apply this to David? Well, David remembered that because he had felt God's help before, he relies on past experience and boldly seeks him for help. How do I know that you can trust God? because I've watched him do exactly what he said he would do. I don't consider myself old, but I'm telling you, I see more and more of what God has done over my life. There are things I couldn't see as a young man that were all of God that I just assumed, you know what, I took care of that, I did that. I don't, I'm self-sufficient. There's nobody here self-sufficient. There is no such thing as a self made man. There's no such thing as a self made woman. We are what we are by the grace of God. God even pours out his grace and gives his blessings to the unjust. Try to figure that one out. He doesn't just give blessings to the people who love him, yet, he still holds them accountable for their actions. David knew what it was to be poor knew what it was to be needy. Was Jesus Christ poor when he was on this earth in his humanity? Absolutely. He didn't even have a place to lay his head, the disciples. He didn't, the foxes even had dens. The foxes had places to go. Jesus had nothing. Poor and needy. Thou art my help and my deliverer. David, in his need, calls upon the Lord to help him and be his deliverer. He does this with utmost diligence. Thou art my help, my deliverer. O Lord, make no tearing. Let me conclude by asking that very very simple question. Not in a superficial means. Not in a way to get what you want. But actually, are you needy? Because if you're not needy today, you'll you'll never understand how much you need Christ. Until you come to the end of yourself, and until you come to the place where you say, I have nothing righteous to give. My good works, no matter how good they are, are not going to be acceptable to God. The only way I'm getting to heaven, the only way I'm getting to glory is through the merits and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. All of his righteousness is based upon his death on the cross. If the gospel isn't real and the gospel isn't true, this was all a big waste of time. But I can assure you, The gospel is never a waste of time. Whether you've been saved for years or you've never been converted, the gospel is never a waste of time. A person that says, I'm already saved, I don't need to hear about the gospel. You know why you need to hear it? Because you need to remember it. You need to remember, maybe you've lost sight of being needy. Maybe you've lost sight of the reality that my full dependence is upon God, not upon myself. It happens very easily. You know how many days we spend just rattling off our own life without ever once taking consideration about God? And we say we're getting along pretty good. You find yourself in a 24-hour day and you've not even thought about the things of Christ and you got to the end of the day and you say, I can do this by myself. Without Him, you can do nothing. You might do some temporary good, but it will not have any merits with who Christ is. Let God be magnified. Let God truly be magnified in all that we say and do. We're going to pray and then we're going to go right into our observance of the Lord's Supper. We will not be long today. Much of the message for our observance of the Lord's Supper was in this psalm. It's a time of remembrance. And we do invite you here in just a moment, if you know Christ as your Savior, there's been a time in your life when you've repented and you've believed on Christ alone as your sole source of your salvation, we invite you to partake. Paul does say in Corinthians to examine yourselves to be whether to see whether you're in the faith. We'd certainly invite you to do that. And if you have not repented and believed on Christ alone, I would advise you to abstain from observing today it will not maybe we will not make anyone feel uncomfortable it's not about that at all or if you feel as if today you're not worthy to receive it i would instruct you if it's unworthiness due to an unrepented sin i would advise you come to repentance now don't ignore this opportunity to just be able to remember who christ is oh lord make notarian was david's last words in that psalm and i hope that that's our words too that Lord, you've been our help and you're our deliverer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this psalm this morning that has so helped us. And Lord, truly the desire of our hearts, as David wrote, and not only spoke about his own life, but predicted what Christ would do. I pray, Lord, that it would bring us to the conclusion of let God be magnified. May God be magnified in our life today and for all of eternity. May we be in a constant state of remembrance of what Christ has done for us. And Lord, again, if there be someone here today or by way of live stream that has not repented and believed the gospel of Jesus Christ, Lord, we pray that the Spirit would move in a mighty way and would convert that soul, would open their eyes, would open their ears, and be making them willing to believe and that they would put all their faith and trust and hope in Christ alone. Father, we thank you. We praise you for all these things. And it's in Christ's name and for his sake, I do pray. Amen.